each time this evening on the retreat, we'll give something called the Dharma Talk. And um, it's really a chance for us to um, further um, clarify what we're doing here and uh, give some context to the practices. So I'd like to begin tonight with a story <clears throat> that comes from Thailand. And it's a story of um, this uh, monastery. Um, and in uh, all the monasteries of Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, there are many Buddha statues. And in this one um, uh, not so well-known monastery in, uh, on the outskirts of Bangkok, there was a Buddha statue that had been there for a very long time. And it had been moved down to Bangkok from uh, Upper Thailand. And <clears throat> it wasn't really all that remarkable. It was fairly big. It was maybe three meters high and uh, four meters wide. And, but uh, just out of devotion to Buddha statues that they have, uh, it, was, it was tended, it was well taken care of. And this particular Buddha <clears throat> um, was covered in uh, plaster and then had some things painted on the outside. So it was large, but um, just made of this mud and plaster on the outside. And in trying to take care of it, at one point they were moving it. They were going to shift it from one temple to another temple. Uh, and in lifting it, trying to get this large Buddha off the ground safely, um, in lifting it, it actually fell. It lifted up a little bit and it fell. And a crack appeared in it. So... <clears throat> they began to look into this crack and see if they could repair it. And the story goes, as they shone a light through this crack, um, the light bounced back. So rather than just looking into something that should have been made of clay, there was something reflective on the inside of it. And so I talked about what to do about this and tried to explore, well, we've had this Buddha for a long time, as is this Buddha statue, but there seems to be something deep within it that shiny, so let's discover what that is. So very carefully they explored and they pulled off some of this mud and clay, the plaster on the outside, and they found that there was this um, beautiful golden Buddha on the inside of the statue. It turned out it was one of the largest gold Buddhas that have ever been made. And so they tried to investigate where did this come from? I mean, for as long as we can remember, we've just had this uh, plaster covered Buddha um, and by examining it and its artistry, um, they and they doing a lot of research, they found that the Buddha possibly had been 700 years old and built at a time when Thailand had a huge capital called Ayutthaya. And <clears throat> uh, it was a very wealthy capital, a very wealthy kingdom, and so they would have built this huge Buddha. It would have been a very prominent statue at one point. But they believe that when the Burmese army was coming over um, and when they sacked Ayutthaya um, about 700 years ago, they were so afraid that this treasured Buddha statue would be stolen that they covered it with uh, plaster and hoping that the army would sort of come, not think much of it and leave, and they could uncover it. But it was such a horrible war that many people were killed and displaced. And all the people actually that remembered this Buddha and where it was and where it had been hidden and where it had been covered, um, either died or were scattered. And so the Burmese didn't take it because it looked like a huge clay Buddha, not worth carrying all the way back to Burma. So in some ways it was safe, but its true value was hidden for centuries. And then people tended it well because it was a Buddha statue, but not thinking much of it until finally a crack appeared when the crack appeared, it gave a true glimmer of what was actually underneath that common surface, the common surface of the plaster and the mud. And to see something that, um, I was just reading, where if you transfer how much gold is in that Buddha, it's something like a $300 million Buddha. <laughs> but for years it was just, oh yeah, there's that big Buddha over there, let's take care of it. Just like some, you know, distant relative, but you're kind to them, but you don't really think much of them because they look kind of ordinary. They're just large. <laughs> so the, the, the value is hidden. <clears throat> and 
this stands as a really beautiful metaphor for what we're doing here and the process you're going through. As we live in our everyday life, because our lives don't tend to feel that sacred, our sacred moments tend to come in um, our special moments, you know, around falling in love or the birth of a child or magical moments, but not often do we feel every day has this exquisite quality of being so precious. So we can go into a little bit of dullness in relationship to life and then uh, futurize some plan of how we might live a better life one day, but our ordinary day sometimes feels crowded um, with responsibilities and things that we're doing and our schedule being too full and we kind of just make it through the day. Maybe have good days, bad days, but not days that feel profoundly special. And not having a sense of our own true capacity of what it's like to have a free heart and mind. So for many of us, that's not the case in daily life. More so is the case, not just in everyday life, but when we start to get into difficulties, when we have a bad stretch, when life is serving up deep challenges, times when there's emotional pain, when there's physical pain, when there's stress. It's even harder to be in contact with um, what's beautiful inside because what's beautiful inside tends to feel a lot. What's beautiful inside tends to have the capacity to really feel what's happening. So in ordinary life, we cover ourselves up a little bit just with not accessing, uh, not being practiced in accessing our beauty. But definitely when we hit challenges, um, even then we like to, we prefer to shield ourselves a little bit, to shield our true capacity, and just slightly numb and obscure what's truly beautiful. Um, and so from that we become disassociated with our true infinite value inside, our true purity. What happens when we come on a retreat like this, even on the very first day, is cracks begin to appear. We're not reinforcing, we're not adding another layer of plaster on top of ourselves day by day. We're not just tending to ourselves like we're just some average Buddha, but not one all of all that much value. We sit here, and I can see it in you all, and it's um, in some of the questions that came out today, where there's doubt or where there's some body fatigue, this is actually a good sign. And I'm not one who just wants to see you suffer. When uh, wanting to see you free and knowing the process of how people actually become free, we sit here and we begin to crack open. And hopefully it's a sort of a gentle, tolerable, cracking open process. Um, we all want to sit here and just, again, sort of keep turning the, the knob up and getting more and more loving as we go on and have it be the sort of steady ramp up in capacity. But the actual terrain is some of that, and then something cracks and something opens a little bit. And some, some habit, some part of ourselves that we've come a little bit numb to, a little bit too accustomed to, begins to feel again that part of us becomes alive again and it begins to break the dull pattern that's been holding it, that's been obscuring it. And in that breaking open process, if we're patient enough to stay with it, which is really the lovely part about being on retreat here, is that you have uh, a lot of support to weather through these, this opening process. The crack opens, the plaster falls off, and then this original, beautiful, uh, ancient, Buddha within begins to show itself. And this is the process you'll you'll experience over the many days here. Bit by bit, this old plaster will crack and fall off. That's a challenging part. But if we are patient enough, it falls off and what's left behind, or what's uh, newly exposed, I guess, is this original beauty and purity uh, that's always been within, but we haven't accessed it. So... That's the process that you'll be going through, that you're already going through. If you've come on retreat a second time, chances are you already have an intuition that that's what happened last time and why you want to come back again. But it's hard the first time you go through. I sat my first silent retreat 25 years ago this month, 
And at the very ending circle, on the very last day, I hadn't spoken in nine days, and they passed a microphone around, and I got it, and the very first words out of my mouth were, um, why does anybody do this twice? <laughs> and I totally, I was, I was very sincere in that question because I just couldn't imagine. It was such an incredible self-encounter, but um, it was rich. It was too rich for me, and I couldn't imagine doing it again. So I sort of bowed, thankfully, glad I had survived, and went on my way. But a year later, I began to reflect upon nothing had been that honest. Nothing had been that direct. Nothing had asked me just to sit and come to know myself, not take on whole new beliefs, but just get to know myself. And as I did, I discovered for myself that these um, dull plaster bits of myself that I had manufactured to get through the world began to fall off. And its replaced with was something quite authentic and quite beautiful. Um, and so having seen that for myself for many years, um, I know that's going to be happening for you. I know that is happening for you on this retreat. And we call that the practice, we call that the path of purification. So we sit here and practice, and it really almost doesn't matter what happens. You're going through a purification process while you sit here. The beautiful thing is that you don't have to build this infinitely worthwhile, um, valuable Buddha within. So not only do you you don't have to break apart and then go about, where am I going to get all that gold? And I don't even know how to make a Buddha statue. And it'll probably come out looking funny because it's my first time. And, you know, I don't know if I'm up for this journey. Luckily, (laughs) the architecture is already there. The architecture of this, uh, these beautiful qualities of heart and mind of patience and kindness and courage and clarity, loyalty, of vision. And all these beautiful qualities uh, are right there at the ready. And they do come through. And probably those are the times of life, those are the times of your own life where you can recognize, yeah, there is something in here that's beautiful, but sometimes it feels obscured. That begins to break through more and more that begins to be more of where you're living from. The one cost of it is that you have to feel more. You have to be willing to feel more. And you have to be willing to feel as you go. You have to open up to actually feeling life as it happens, as opposed to withdrawing and putting something between you and life, a buffer. Because that tends to be what dulls us out. There is... um, a part of the human brain called the insula. And it's a part of the cortex, if you're neuro-wonks, if you like neurobiology. I'm just learning about it. And this part of the brain um, does so many things. And it's actually the surface of the brain, but it's part of where the surface of the brain gets tucked in very deeply. So it's almost like if you took a bed sheet and then took the sheet and tucked it under itself, You know, the surface goes way deep within. So it's a part of the brain that's really just being explored now. Um, But this one part, the insula, it does so many things. And one of the things that it does is it's where a lot of our sensations of our body are brought up to our awareness. So if you can feel anything, temperature in your body, if that becomes conscious for you, that's part of this part of your brain, the insula, letting it come into consciousness, the temperature of your body, the sensations in your body, feeling your own heartbeat. So as we've been welcoming you to um, feel more into your body throughout this day, you're opening up that conscious relationship. You're opening up the insula in your brain. And that um, is how you're going to become more embodied through working on um, spending more time in that conscious relationship, paying attention to what the insula is telling us. The insula is also <clears throat> where we become aware of and process a lot of our emotions, and especially our social emotions, ones of empathy, but also fear, ones of guilt, um, ones of camaraderie, ones of feeling a social ease, of, um, feeling joined with others. And so this part is um, a development of the mammalian brain, and it's even been more highly developed 
in uh, primates and then in humans. It's also where language is processed. And language is a very recent um, adaptation to our nervous system, to our brain structure. The insula actually does so many things um, that they say it almost does everything. It almost participates in everything we do. So what we're doing here, moment by moment, is actually training, opening, strengthening, reinforcing awareness of what's going on in this part of the brain. And we're doing that day by day. We're doing that moment by moment. Every time you draw your attention back, you feel deeply, more deeply into your body, you become aware of what's going on with you emotionally. All that, all those uh, synaptic connections are getting stronger and reinforced and uh, encouraged to grow, encouraged to reinforce themselves. So one way of looking at what we do here is this deep uh, brain training. But it's on a very important part of the brain. It's where intuition comes from. It's where empathy comes from. Um, But also a deep sense of um, not being well. And so uh, cravings can come from there, a sense of insecurity. All this stuff passing through this one very small, they say it's the size of uh, a prune. And this one part of the brain. Actually, we have two parts on either side. So for those of you that are interested in neurobiology, that's a lot of what we're training here is um, uh, strengthening and clarifying and, and bringing more function to our nervous system. When I was younger, I used to do a lot of canoeing up in the, the wilderness of Canada. And <clears throat> we used to go up, the, up and down these rivers and we would know them. They'd been traveled for thousands of years by the Native Americans that lived there. So we'd take these old routes Every now and then, um, a log or a tree would fall across the river, and then if it blocked the river, anything that was flowing down the river would get caught in that tree, and then mud would get caught behind that, leaves would get caught in that, and it would disrupt the river and it would start eating away at the river banks. So we'd often be canoeing on this river, and you could let that happen as a natural process, but it really begins to change the whole landscape when a river is blocked. So the first thing you do is you try to clear away what's easy and let the water flow. But eventually you have to grab onto a pretty hefty log that's been trapped into this jam and work it. You put your hands right on it and you work this. And if you can break it free, so much water begins to pass through where that log has come into a jam. And you see the water start to flow. And as the water starts to flow, it begins to kind of clean itself up. It begins to take all the mud out just having the, the water flowing at a higher speed. And that makes it easier to get at a deeper log that's been stuck under that one, and you can wrestle that one free. And pretty soon you can liberate the river back to its flowing state. This is, again, another analogy of what we'll be doing here, is that we'll be sitting here, time will be flowing by, and we'll be practicing. And there will be times of ease, and times where there's just a good sense of flow, and you're doing your best to be present, the mind wanders a little bit. But you'll come across experiences, you'll come across a part of yourself where doubt will arise, or anger, or frustration, or impatience. Letting your kind attention, your kind awareness, your loving awareness, be in contact with the same experience that is causing you frustration begins to transform that block, that jam, in, the own, in your own flow of your own being. So anytime that you're here and doubt comes up, as was talked about earlier, or frustration comes up, if you agree with it, which is easy to do, yeah, I shouldn't have come, or no, this doesn't work for me, you actually spend time agreeing with it. In a way, you're kind of um, putting that jam back deeper in. You're saying, yes, this belongs here. But if you can relax a little bit, that doubt, that uh, frustration, whatever is arising, will loosen up and will let itself go, will let itself free. And you can even kind of help it to be free by inviting whatever state has arisen of anger, frustration, fear, doubt, inviting it to let go 
inviting it to move on. And at some point it does. And what's left behind, as I mentioned earlier, is just a much greater flow. The current of the river flows, the current of your own mind flows where before it might have been blocked. And so this also happens uh, hour by hour, day by day that we're here. I spent a year living in Burma and I, I lived in these two different monasteries and I was astounded that every week I was there, I, was, I felt more free. And it wasn't until I was free of something that I realized I had been accustomed to being stuck there before and didn't know freedom beyond that thought pattern, that emotional pattern was possible. And yet one more kind of thing would come out, one more block would come out, and I would just feel the, the, the ease, the liberation, the freedom of my own heart and mind and I was like, well, how could it go deeper? I think this is about as deep as one can go. I've never felt this free and at ease. Then I'd go through another challenging process. You know, it could be a whole day or maybe two or maybe just an hour. <clears throat> and I would work with it, just usually with patience and faith. And then there'd be a release. There'd be a deeper letting go. And then I would feel that much more free and at ease. And my mind would be clearer. And I said, Could, how, how much further can this go? And I just kept seeing it went. So after living um, in Burma for a year, I came back and kept the practice going. And it just kept deepening. It just kept deepening. And it has over the last 25 years. It was good in the beginning, although it was intense. Um, but it's, it's, kept, it's kept this incredible sense of freeing freeing myself from internal habits and patterns where I feel stuck, where I get confused, where I get tripped up. They keep um, breaking free and they keep opening up. The Buddha um, gave two similes on this same topic. One is the simile of purifying gold. And so you find um, in ancient times, actually now too, you find gold ore. So... um, a vein in the earth that has a lot of gold in it, but also has a lot of other stuff in it too. And you carve that out. You break it up a little bit and you begin to wash it and agitate it. And from that, you can separate out the parts that are gold, that have more gold in them and less gold. And so you kind of separate them just by agitating them in water. You break them up a little bit more, you wash it off with water, and you can keep washing off finer and finer uh, impurities of the gold until you're left with uh, just the underlying gold itself. Then you take that gold and you put it in a crucible and you add a lot of heat and the gold begins to melt and deeper impurities begin to float up to the top and they're uh, scooped off and what's left is even more pure gold. This is also the analogy of this purification process. The Buddha described um, this as um, the gross impurities of the heart and the mind that first get easily put aside our misconduct of body, speech, and mind. And so when we took the practice of the precepts, we were putting aside actions of harm, uh, speech that would be harming, and the types of thoughts that would be brewing that type of action. Even more pure to help the mind become more pure is to put aside our craving for uh, desire, our brewing a sense of ill will and harmfulness. And then even uh, deeper into that, we put aside all the thoughts we have, concerns for ourself, about ourselves, um, about our reputation, about our standing in society, um, being able to put those aside And he says, we're left with, at some point, just thoughts of the Dharma, just thoughts of service, of kindness, enjoying a sense of peace. And even that can be purified so that even those thoughts don't come and plague us so much as one of the students was mentioning earlier, all all the thinking about Dharma can also be relieved. And the underlying heart and mind is very pure at that point very malleable, not caught up, not easily caught up. 
So that's also the practice that we're doing here. When your mind is wandering and you bring it back, you sort of let go of that type of agitation, that pattern of agitation. We do it many, many times, gently, letting go, letting go, letting go. And that will help purify our underlying heart and mind, expose that uh, Buddha within. This is the process that you've been engaged in all day. Another analogy is the one of a cloth. And so you you probably have this in your house too, but you have certain, you might buy new um, dish rags to dry your dishes. And you use them and clean them, use them and clean them, but eventually one gets a stain on it that doesn't clean out easy. So <clears throat> that sort of gets downgraded because <laughs> it has this, this uh, mark on it. Then you're going to clean up other things with it. You might move down to cleaning the, the countertops, maybe even cleaning the floor, and then it gets even dirtier. You clean it, but it starts to really begin to pick up dirt. And we lose value in it each time. At some point, it becomes a rag that we would um, really just clean up the dirtiest things with. Our hearts and our minds are a bit like that too, that because we lose sight of their underlying value, their underlying uh, original purity, we don't tend to them. And so because we don't tend to them, we're more likely to subject ourselves to less satisfying experiences. And then that becomes less satisfying. And so we tend to uh, subject ourselves to even um, more disturbing experiences. You know, once... Um, I don't, I don't quite understand uh, zombie movies, <laughs> but I, I, just to see what the fascination was, I started watching um, The Walking Dead. And it was, it was kind of fascinating, but it was really disturbing. But I noticed that it started affecting my dreams. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't need this, this type of imagery kind of like haunting me at this point. So in some ways, you can, uh, you can drift off to where what you're doing with your heart and mind is even less reflective of your values. And you start having a less satisfying experience with life and you keep lowering the bar. Or you can take it in the opposite direction. And you take this cloth, the analogy is you clean it really well and you begin to see its underlying original nature. And you clean it really well and you see even again, you start recovering the, um, if you're willing to, to keep cleaning the cloth, you can keep cleaning what's uh, been stuck to it and even recover the original cloth. That's again what we're doing with our hearts and our minds. This practice is, if we're patient, you will keep discovering a greater uh, freedom, a greater sense of your own heart and mind in its free states. Its free states tend to have this natural beauty, again, of patience, humor, um, creativity, um, beautiful experiences of love, of empathy, intuition. The powerful thing about doing this practice, the loving-kindness practice, is that it goes right into some of the places we've been hurt the most and some of the habits we have, protective habits, and begins to challenge them gently but fairly directly. So the habits we've picked up of fear, of competition, of um, being cynical, uh, mistrusting, all those protective habits will get challenged by trying to invite yourself to be loving, to be patient, to be trusting, to be generous. So um, this practice goes right in and it begins to loosen up uh, these habits of mind that we might be drawn into in daily life because we're tired or we're scattered or we find life overwhelming. And then we reach for um, more protective strategies and maybe not be drawn, um, we may not draw on our highest capacity in a challenging situation. I was just visiting another community that I'm a part of. And um, because I was coming in from the outside, Several people there asked me to help them with a um, an argument that had that had sprung up, 
And I listened to both sides of it and both, both people, um, when they told their version of it, they had done the best they could under hard circumstances, but the other person was completely unreasonable. And it's easy to hear what probably happened, um, but they both couldn't see it. They had lost sight of the other person filtered in by their anger or their fear, their mistrust. And at that point, they got locked into this argument. And so in hearing it, I began to suggest um, maybe everybody had tried their best, but in that particular circumstance, you all got overwhelmed. And then these other habits came in, these protective habits came in of frustration and anger and suspicion. And once they took over, they fed on each other. So maybe there actually is an underlying goodness to everybody involved, but it's been lost in this argument. And because they have uh, dedication to these views that uh, their trouble might have, become, might have come somewhat from within, slowly they began to release that anger. They began to open up to the possibility that they had overreacted and they had been a part of the, uh, the argument. Maybe what they said wasn't skillful. And so they were able to open back up to forgiveness, open back up to relating to each other, to um, risk trusting each other again. So recovering uh, that sense of open-heartedness that had been lost in the pain of the conflict. So that's uh, what many of us um, need to do, especially in intimate relationships, people we live with, family members, people we work with, is that we find at times life is overwhelming and we do our best to have our best qualities rise up and carry the moment. But often um, we are overwhelmed. So we do find ourselves impatient or the wrong thing comes out of our mouth. And then we get, we get bound up with other people and then can't see the good in them, can't see the good in ourselves. This practice is like taking off the layers of our heart and recovering our own original goodness, our own original purity. And then we can see the world from that open heart and mind. And many of the troubles that we would have solved with a defensive heart and mind or an angry heart and mind, the problem looks different when you're not so agitated by anger, not so agitated by suspicion or cynicism. The world looks different and from that, the solutions look different. I used to do a lot of work in homeless shelters for teenagers. And they were very intense places to work. You know, you'd get uh, a teenager, which is already a difficult time of life, right? Coming to a shelter and they'd be dropped off by a parent or maybe by um, a relative or by a policeman. And the emotions would be revving. People would be so angry and scared. And then we'd have to begin to sort it out a little bit. And after several months of doing that, um, it was just so hard to feel that much, going to work every day and feel that much conflict. And it felt intractable. Like, wow, this family, is so, it's been so long that people have been so angry with each other. And then I w- would do a meditation retreat like this and I would slowly let go of all the accumulated stress and tension and welcome my heart back up and say, okay, let's try this again. Let's try to stay open-hearted in the face of all this social dysfunction and social pain that leads to homelessness for young people. And I'd go back into the shelter and I would have a greater capacity to hear people talk about how they were hurt, to be patient with them, to feel what was happening with them. And just that capacity to listen well and to feel what they were going through, to have true empathy that their story was really painful, but I had a greater capacity to stay with it without reaching my limit. And sometimes, just when someone felt heard, they just wanted to be heard once. They just wanted the universe to hear them out one time about how bad their situation was. And if you, if I heard them out once, 
thoroughly, they would then say, and I'm ready to forgive, I'm ready to put it down. Now, teenagers may not be that sophisticated to language it like that, but I saw so many people just wanting to be seen one time about how hard their life was. And if they could be seen, there'd be a relaxation. And that relaxation, a new way of looking at the same situation would open up. But until they, if they hadn't been heard, there would be this lock on, like a dog with a bone, like gripping it. I'm right and I haven't been heard yet, so I'm not looking, I'm not interested in a solution that doesn't acknowledge how hard I've had it. So this loving kindness practice, one, it's good for ourselves to be able to do it, but two, we actually then can move through the world and we can feel it on a deeper level and it becomes the type of medicine for yourself, the people around you, anybody you encounter, that you can actually uh, commune with that other person, that you've opened up to be resonant with other people, which is, again, strangely enough, a part of this part of the brain. It's... um where we get empathy and where we get resonance as that part opens up. It's um, part of the brain that lights up on these fMRI uh, scans when people are doing relative, when they're in a, a conscious aspect of relationship. Turning to this practice of kindness and uh, Metta, really, the Pali word is metta, and it can be translated many ways, and it often is the word that gets translated as love. But um, love for us can be kind of a challenged word. It carries a lot, and we want so much out of love, and we yearn so much for love, so much so that some people can't stand it, and they try to block themselves from um, that exchange we have, that feeling we have for each other, this loving tenderness. But it's what we'll be practicing over the next couple of days is tuning back into that. And so it's helpful to tune into what loving kindness is, what metta actually is. The root of the word metta, which is the old Pali word. Uh, Pali was the language close to the, what the Buddha taught, um, spoke. 2,500 years ago. So that language is this word metta, and it gets translated as loving kindness. But it can also be translated as as friendship or friendliness, universal friendliness, uh, benevolence. It's what we're trying to tune into. It's what we're kind of, if we could draw something forward to meet our experience, to be part of how we're meeting our experience, we're trying to see things clearly, but we're also trying to bring up this warmth of heart. And so um, I wanted to read a little bit about um, some imagery the Buddha used to tune us into what metta is. Metta is this um, kindness, it's a tone of kindness that doesn't really need anything in return. It's a kindness that just um, enjoys the very kindness itself. It's a self-validating love. It doesn't have a, um, an attachment to it. It doesn't have conditions to it. So here's some of the imagery from a, one of the discourses. Um, Just as a mother would watch over her child, her one and only child, with her life, just in just the same way, develop a mind unbounded towards all living creatures. Develop a mind of loving kindness, unbounded towards the entire world, above and below and all the way around, with no holding back, no loathing, and no foe. That might be a tall order to imagine you could just click that and make that happen, but it's what we're orienting towards. And you all have felt this, and it's probably already a part of what your most favorite relationships have in them. But we want to sort of tune into that aspect um, because it can get slightly entangled with what we get attached to when we come into a loving relationship. So for me, um, there are 
there are times when I was, um, when my sister's kids were born, when I would hold them, they would fall asleep. And just in their sleeping, feeling them breathe, feeling the, the tenderness of this young being, there'd be this sort of um, uncle energy, I would call it, that would sort of rise up and it felt like this um, beautiful determination rising up that for the rest of this young being's life, I will be there. And I would be kind of surprised at the, the calling upon myself that this feeling would bring up, this loyalty, this timelessness. And they didn't have to do anything to deserve it. There was just whatever this being needs, in some way I will respond with this, um, this caring. And it actually became a beautiful thing to, to feel that rising up within because it may not have been so ordinary, um, accessed in ordinary moments of the day. But feeling that, that rising up of the care, the care for this child, maybe more common, because um, I don't get to hold young children that much, uh, is the same feeling I have when a cat um, jumps up in my lap, purrs, and falls asleep. It's a more gentle version of it. But the cat doesn't need to, doesn't owe me. I'm not like clocking how long it's been on my lap and it's got to do something for me later. Just to be there for this being while it takes rest and to give it comfort. And it's really a beautiful one-way adoration of this other being and being happy to care for it. This is what we're trying to dial into, what we're trying to dial into with loving kindness, with a loving awareness. It's steady, it's patient, it's loyal. It has this benevolence in it. It has a care for the well, the well-being of whatever is under its gaze. This is a loving kindness, a loving awareness and what we're cultivating here. And you can cultivate the heart like you can cultivate a garden. It's just a matter of patience, of putting in good seeds, covering up and watering them and tending them. And then trust that those seeds actually have within them the capacity to grow. I don't grow tomatoes. I plant the seed, the seed grows the tomatoes. I just tend it with the right conditions. These are all the right conditions for these beautiful aspects of us that might have been dormant or not as strong as we know they could be. During the, the days that we're here, these are beautiful conditions to have these beautiful qualities of heart and mind grow and become strong and then become very powerful and finally unstoppable. They can't be hidden when they become so strong. You're all here and it's um, it's all happening. The challenging moments are just as much a the central part of the experience as are the beautiful moments, calm moments. They're all a part of the practice. We've all gone through it. Anybody who's been here for a day or two will experience challenge. I mean, just as a show of hands, uh, how many people have faced something already today that they felt was challenging? And at the end of the retreat, we can ask it again and two hands and two feet will go up. <laughs> it's, it's a part of it. And I kind of wish that it weren't so, but I can be mature enough to know that it's just, it's just how it is, that this being human is complex. And this is the actual work of, um, of opening up opening up these capacities that we don't get to access so much in daily life, letting them grow strong in these conditions, and then taking them home with us. And finally, we actually can keep them strong even when we go home. And so what you're starting here today is not just experiences you can have here, but you're starting experiences, you're starting capacities and growing them so that they can come with you and be accessible in all conditions. Unconditional freedom is freedom in all conditions. Unconditional love is love in all conditions. So just finding out what would love feel like in this moment. You know, as I'm, as I'm walking here and a little bit of bored, 
what would love feel like in this moment? I'm sitting there and things are flowing well. What would love feel like in this moment? How is love a part of this moment? Orienting towards that, welcoming those aspects of heart and mind up to the surface. The last thing I'll say tonight is that it can be very powerful to love other beings and it can change them. So what you're cultivating here can become a tremendous gift to others as you tap into your own heart and let it be strong and find that inner capacity. But your capacity to authentically love yourself is maybe one of the more profound things you can do in your time here on earth. You're with you 24-7. And if you have a struggling relationship to yourself, turning that around uh, is good for the planet. When The more I love myself in the right way, the more content I am, the more benefit I am, the less I'm drawing upon the world uh, to make me happy. I can actually find a happiness that opens up from within. Then I can turn to be a better service to the world. So we're going to practice here in a way where we open up a loving attention towards all beings. And in that, uh, if you had you on one hand and seven billion people and all the other all the ants and termites and mammals and sea creatures on the other, it'd be this teeter back and forth of which may be more important, all beings loving them. But making sure you're a part of all beings. And making sure as you go through your own experience of yourself, as you sit here and go walking, uh, walking on a path, eating the meals here opening up that beautiful relationship to yourself and truly getting love down deep inside towards yourself is a very beautiful act. It's a very beautiful transformation. So again, over these next few days, we'll be practicing in both directions, learning how to settle into our own experience and find it a loving, caring one. And then learning as we open our attention up, wherever our attention lands, it can be imbued with some tone of love or kindness, gentleness, patience. One of the elders in our tradition, um, I think she was Indian, an Indian woman named Deepama, who grew up in Burma. And late on in life, she had a very deep awakening with these practices, one of the most um, unbounded awakenings that we know of um, in our tradition. When she was asked by her students um, what her experience is on the other side of her awakening, she said it's sort of, it, it's awareness and love. And they're really the same thing. To be aware of something is to love it. And to love something is to be aware of it. And just putting it that simply, that what we're growing towards is a loving awareness. And almost those two words begin to become the same thing. Pure awareness as it becomes free, as your heart becomes free, it automatically loves. It's the very fabric of awareness that it has this kindness in it. And to be kind but not aware doesn't make much sense. That's sort of a floating state. To be kind is to actually come into the world and really touch the world with your heart, with your full heart. So again, this is the loving awareness retreat is what we're cultivating. We'll do more instruction uh, tomorrow morning on how to do tangible steps to keep cultivating it. But for today, just dropping in and feeling your body, opening up that relationship, strengthening that relationship to 
your felt experience as you breathe, sitting, as you're walking, feeling your feet, just being more embodied. That's how this process opens. So you've all made great strides today on the first day. Glad to be here with you. Just sit for a moment and let the words settle. Enjoy your evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.